come and join us tomorrow at 11. Okay, so back to this. Um, so this definition that being reformed is somebody who is just reforming their mind, reforming their thinking on a regular basis. Anytime you have a thought or an opinion or a theological idea and you read the Bible and the Bible seems to contradict what you think or believe, we reform ourselves, right? We reform our thinking. And I, I just want to tell you the reason that I think that this is a good definition is because to be reformed doesn't mean that you have to come to the same conclusions as I do or as this church does. Um, I am not trying to pull away from good theology, right? This church is unashamedly, like, because here's the thing. With the Reformed theology, a lot of people, we, we, we bring in this idea of predestination. And these two things go hand in hand in most people's minds. And I believe that that's true. And I'm not saying that the church doesn't, we do believe that. Unashamedly, that's where we stand, right? Our statement of faith says that. I believe that personally. I'm not trying to water that down. All I'm trying to do is say, there are, there are times and there are people that I know who, who, legitimately read their Bible, they study it, and their true and honest conviction is different than mine, or different than um, what we would consider as traditional Reformed theology. We don't, we don't get to hijack the word. That's my point, is that all of us, this is what we should be striving for. We should always be striving to rethink and to reshape our mind, to reshape our thinking. Um, and my example is my wonderful father-in-law. So my father-in-law was a pastor for a long, long time. He is an honest man. He believes the Bible. He, he studies it. He loves Jesus, right? And he disagrees with me on some of the things that we sort of lump into Reformed theology. It's, it's not that he's not a reforming person, right? He is regularly reading his Bible and reshaping his thinking and thinking about stuff and changing his mind and changing, changing his opinion. I don't want to say that we have taken that turn. We haven't. Um, so I just, I just want to be clear. This is why I define it that way. I think it's helpful. For me, it's really helpful that that's what we are striving towards. We're not striving towards everybody agree on all doctrinal issues across the board. We are striving for a church of people who are willing to abandon their own thoughts, their own opinions, and their own ideas when the Bible comes in opposition to those. That's, I think, a really strong way to define what it means to be reformed. We are constantly reforming ourselves and our thinking um, so, with that said, let's um, look at these verses this morning. So we're going to start in verse 7. Um, and verse 7 was actually in our reading for last week, but really it fits better with what's going to happen following verse 7. Um, and so, I think we're going to include it this week. So Paul tells us that he, he is calling to all of the people who are in Rome. So, once, first of all... I'm sure you all know this, but like Paul had never met these people, right? This is a church that's all halfway, well, at, from their perspective, like all the way across the world, right? Um, he has never been there. He doesn't know these people. It's not like when he's writing in Corinthians and he knows the people and he's calling people out by name, like the sins that they're committing, right? He knows them. He helped them form this church. He's been there. He prayed with them. He spent time with them. For the Romans, he doesn't know them. He just knows that there is a Christian church in Rome and he is excited about that. And so he's writing this letter and he's telling them from the very beginning here, right? Grace and peace to the believers that are there. So I just want to notice a few things that we see in verse 7. Paul is speaking this blessing and he's speaking over those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So these are two different things, right? To be loved by God is different than to be called to be into sainthood. 
So God loves the entire world, right? If you, we all know that verse, right? If you've been in church as a kid, it's like the first one we memorized. You know, it's a great verse, right? God loved the entire world. He does love all of his creation, but he doesn't call everybody into sainthood. And so there's two different things that are going on here. God's love for the whole world, and then this idea that he is calling certain people into sainthood. So Paul is already hinting on this idea, right, that God is calling certain people. Now, he explains this in far more detail as we go. So we're, I'm not going to jump into it now. We're going to get to those things when we get to those passages. But God is tell, I mean, Paul is telling us, look, the grace and peace that Paul is asking for is for the people who are called into sainthood. And that's an interesting thing to think about because he's not asking for grace and peace to be on the entire world. He's asking for God's love to come before them, but those who are not saints, by definition, are not receiving the grace of God. Now, we have something that we call common grace, which everybody is receiving, right? Your life could be far worse than it is. Your unbelieving neighbor's life could be far worse than it is. God's common grace has stopped you know, certain horrible things from happening in our lives and in the lives of unbelievers, right? God makes it rain on the believer and the unbeliever. There are things that we would call common grace that are happening. But the grace that Paul is talking about, right, the grace that we see in salvation is not coming to the entire world. And so he's saying, look, it's only to the saints that he is asking for grace and peace. And this made me think, because in light of my job as a chaplain on a regular basis, I interact with people who are sick and who are dying and their families and they're not Christians. And I have just by default prayed and asked that the Lord would bring peace on the person. A person who has blatantly said to me, I do not believe in God. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, man, like, that's maybe not the healthiest way to pray for that person. Maybe the healthiest thing is that I would pray that they wouldn't have peace. That they would be restless. That their soul would be uneasy inside their body. That they would be recognizing that they're missing something. That they would be looking to God for their peace. Because here's the, the reality is without God as our Savior, we're not going to find peace. We're going to find things that may seem to be or resemble peace, but it's not real. It's not lasting. And we know that when we are accepting of Christ, that peace is lasting. And so it's a weird thing. And I, I say this just because it, it's a small thing, but for me it kind of came as a revelation. Like that... I don't think that the people, our unbelieving friends, that we should be praying for peace, but we should be praying for restless nights, that we should be praying for a spirit inside of them that won't be still because they know something is wrong. I'm missing something. There's something in my life that's not there. And so this blessing that Paul states, it is for the saints. It's for those who are believers. He is asking for this peace to continue to fall on those who have been called into sainthood. Now, this next big section here is this idea that Paul has a longing to go to Rome, right? He thanks God for them. He thanks God for their faith. And what's really interesting, their faith is known throughout the world. And Paul doesn't write to the Romans and say, thank you, Romans, for the great and wonderful faith that you have. Your faith is being told across the world. Who is he thanking for the fact that they have faith that is known across the world. He's thanking God for their faith. He recognizes the author of their faith. He knows that their faith is not of their own doing. He knows that their faith 
comes from the Lord. God is the one who is granting it. God is the one who is strengthening it. Now, they act upon that faith, right? This is this paradox that we always have. Well, is it God doing it or is it me doing it? What's going on? Is it God 99% and I'm 1%? What is happening here? And I think Philippians 2, this very, very famous little snippet, um, paints a picture for us, right? You've all heard this. But you may have never thought of it in this term. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Well, thanks for clearing that one up, right? Is it me working it out or is it God working in me? I don't, it's both, right? It's not one or the other. It's not God working it out and me doing nothing and just sitting back and be like, well, great. The Lord is doing everything for me. I have no responsibility. I have no, I have no need to act. God just does everything. But it's also not just me. It's not just me working out my own salvation with fear and trembling. God is working in me, right? That's how it is for every one of us. This paradox exists that God is working in us, and we are also responsible to act, to be obedient, to do what God is calling. And so Paul recognizes this, like their faith is from God, and yet they are acting upon it, and their faith, because they're being obedient, is known across the world. And then Paul really is going to lay us all to shame here um, because it, he, he, he says something and you think, man, how noble of him. And then he says something else and he's like, he just keeps upping the ante over and over. And so where he starts is that he is praying for this church without ceasing. These are people that he's never met. And yet, because they share his faith, because they are brothers and sisters in Christ, with him, he spends time every single day praying for them. They are united by their faith. And that is enough. That's enough for Paul to spend the time to write out this massive letter. It's enough for Paul to spend time every single day praying for these people because they are united by their faith in Christ. He doesn't know them. He doesn't know their name. He's never met them. And yet he is praying for them every day. It's enough for Paul, and I'm asking you this morning, is that enough for you? Is it enough for you to know, and I'm not even talking about strangers, but what about just the people in this room, the people who are a part of the same church that you are, that we are, right, that we are in this church together? How often are you praying for the people who sit each week, week in and week out, alongside you in church here? How often are you spending time praying for those people? Paul's praying for strangers. And I, if you're anything like me, I fall down on the job of praying for the ministers who work side by side with me in, my, in the same community I do, in, under the same roof that I do, and I fail to pray for the people within my own church. And yet Paul, every day, is praying for strangers. How much more should we care about and pray for one another? For the people who sit here, the people that we know their names, we recognize their face, we know their struggles, we know what they're going through. How much more should we be praying for one another than Paul is praying for strangers? The least that we can do is pray for one another. The very least, right? The very least that we can do is pray for the fellow members in our church. But Paul ups the ante, and the challenge continues. Not only is Paul praying for them, but he longs to see them. He has a desire to spend time with these Christians. 
Once again, purely because they are united by faith, he doesn't know them. And he desires to be with them so that they can be mutually encouraged, right? That's what Paul says. He says, I want to come and preach the gospel to you. I want to encourage you. I want to impart wisdom to you. And I want to be mutually encouraged by you. That is, what he, that is the message that he is sending to the strangers, the Christians, his brothers and sisters in Rome. He desires to spend time with them and see them because he knows the value of spending time. We like to, we, we our, our church culture uses the iron sharp as iron, right? This idea that that's what we want to do. We want to spend time with one another. We want to discuss ideas. We want to discuss the Bible because maybe somebody has an idea that we have never thought of and that iron can sharpen us. And then we have an idea that maybe they've never thought of. And so we can sharpen them. And it's a free exchange of ideas of trying to understand God's word more deeply. Paul desires to spend time with his fellow Christians. My encouragement my challenge, I guess, to you is the same that we see here. Is that a desire that you have? Now, even if you're thinking, well, yeah, but hospitality is my, not my gift. You're right. In, we're, we're in your camp there. My, my wife and I love, we just love to be home. We just, we're home as much as possible. We, we should invite people over more than we do, and we just don't. We're just like, ah, we're home. It's great. Like, we're just hanging out in our, in our own little bubble, and we love it, and we're not outgoing people. We like to stay home. We're introverted, and that's not an excuse, though. <laughs> I mean, that's not an excuse to not spend time with the people of God. So I don't know where you're at. If, you're, if, if hospitality is your thing, maybe inviting somebody to your house once a week for dinner and getting to know them and different people. Invite the people who you already know here, who are like your close friends. But invite the people who you've seen four or five times and you think, I can't even remember their names. Let's invite them over. Let's get to know them. Let's spend time with one another. Maybe if you're like me and you're the introvert, maybe once a month. Like, but it, just because it's not your natural gifting is not like an excuse or, well, I'm just not going to do it then, right? We need to be in each other's lives. We need to be involved with one another. I don't know what that looks like, right? It doesn't have to look like inviting people over to your house for dinner. I don't care. Go hunting. I don't know. Whatever it is, find something that you can do together. Spend time with one another. This is Paul's challenge for us. And if you think it was over, it's not. It gets even harder. He wants to pray for these people. He wants to spend time with them. And then he is obligated to the Greek and to the barbarian, to the wise and the foolish. Paul says it's not just people inside the walls of the church that God is calling me to. It's everybody else as well. Yes, God is calling you to pray for one another. Yes, God is calling you to spend time with one another. But God is also calling each one of us to evangelize the people outside of these four walls. Now, you don't have to look very long or very hard in our world to find somebody who we might think of as foolish, right? Paul says he's being called to preach to the Greek and the barbarian, the wise and the foolish. You see, we may fall on the opposite side of a political spectrum from people. We might see things that people say and think, what on earth, where could you possibly have come up with this idea? And the temptation is to want to separate ourselves from that. 
I don't inherently desire to go speak with people who believe that a man can have a baby. Like that it blows my mind. That's not somebody that I desire to want to spend time with. And yet right here, we are obligated to go and share the gospel with everybody. Somebody who says that the earth is flat, right? That's all they ever want to talk about. That's not somebody that I tend to want to spend time with. And yet I'm obligated to go and to preach the gospel to everybody. I see things and I wonder and I see the world and I often wonder, like, how is it even possible that some people could be reeled back into reality and to the world as we know it? And, and then I remember the gospel can do that and far more. Right? It can clean up our thinking. It can clear our minds to think clearly, to understand what is good and what is true. And when I think about this, I'm reminded of the book of Daniel. And do you remember what God did to Nebuchadnezzar? He took his mind for seven years. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just like sitting around not able to speak. He was out in the field eating grass like an animal. God took his thinking, his thought process, completely away from him. And at the end of seven years, what does he do? He gives it all back. If God can do that, he can clear out some of the nonsense that is being spouted by our society. We don't say, well, that, that's for someone else to do. Our obligation is to everyone. We are being called to share the gospel with the world, not just the, with the people that we feel comfortable with, not just the people that we, that we want to share the gospel with or that we like or that we are around or that share some of our same things, but the entire world, no matter what kind of craziness is being spouted, the gospel can clean up and clear and forgive anything and everything. If you thought the challenge was over, it's not. Paul calls us to pray for our fellow Christians. He calls us to spend time with one another. And then he calls us to go outside of the church. And he's obligated to these people. But then Paul says, and here is the one that is really, really difficult. He says that he is eager to do it. He says, I am eager to come to you to preach the gospel in Rome. Paul is eager to to go into the belly of the beast. You see, when Paul is writing this book, Roman, uh, the Romans weren't killing Christians across the entire Roman Empire just quite yet. But in Rome, that was very common. It was happening almost immediately after Jesus' death and resurrection and the story comes. And the emperor, right, he is killing as many of them as he can. Rome was an extremely dangerous place it would be like us saying we want to go into the heart of pakistan with our bibles and preach out on the streets you're probably going to die if you do that anybody eager to do that paul is eager to go to the most dangerous place on earth for christians in order to preach the gospel to those who are there oftentimes i don't get beyond the obligation feel God calling me. I feel obligated to preach the gospel. 
and I do it, and I'm a little bit reluctant, and I think, oh, I don't want this person to think I'm a fool, or I don't want this person to reject me, and I, but I do it, and at the end of that, I'm really proud of myself that I was like, yes, I did it. The obligation was there, and I think that <laughs> that's not quite far enough, right? That's not, what Paul, that's not where we stop. If you are, if you're out evangelizing because you know that it's what you should be doing, praise God. Great job. But there is a step further. God is calling us to be eager to go out and share the gospel. I think there's something worth mentioning here. God's will versus our own. Two different times Paul says, you know, this is what I've wanted to do. I desire to come to see you. I've intended to come to see you, but he's been stopped all of the way. And I think this is the balance that we saw over and over again in Ecclesiastes, right? Make plans. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with intending to do things. There's nothing wrong with planning out five years. But just hold it real loose, right? Because you have no idea what God is doing. You have no idea what the future holds. It may come to play, come to pass exactly as you hoped it would, and it may be completely different than you hoped it was going to. Either way, we praise God. Either way, we're excited by this. And so it's really interesting that Paul would tell us, look, this is his heart. This is his desire to go and be with these people, but he's not willing to force it. He's not willing to go against God's will in order to do the thing that he wants to do. This is like a huge, I mean, this is huge in my life right now because I have this big struggle like I have such a strong desire to go to be in Houston to be with my dad you know he's my dad's on hospice and he's suffering and he's dying right now and I just there's this desire that raises up in me every day like just get a plane ticket go see him go spend time you know everything else just push it all to the side and I know that like that's my internal that's what I want that's my internal desire but the Lord is calling me to be doing something else Right? My family needs me. My wife and my children need me here, not just to be here for them as their dad, but to, to work right, and to provide for them and all of the different things that I would have to give up if I just pushed everything away and went and did what I want to do. But God has been comforting in me in this, and he's saying, look, there's coming a day. right? There will be a day when I get to go and I get to be with him. And so eventually my desire and my will is going to align up with God's, hopefully God willing, right, that I'll be able to go and do that. And that's how we have to do these things, right? We have these desires that come up in us, but we have to consult what we believe to be God's will in that moment. If they conflict, you have to get rid of what you want in lieu of what God wants for you. Last thing I'll say is what we see in 16, 17. The gospel is being explained to us to some degree. Um, he's expounding upon his understanding of it. And the first thing that he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now it seems somewhat of a weird thing to say, but I think we are all very aware of what Paul is speaking about. I'm sure that each one of us, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but that there has been a measure or a level of shame when we think about this person in front of me needs to hear the gospel, but all of these things come flooding into our brain, right? Into our, our sort of human nature comes out, and we think, well, once again, I don't want them to think 
that I'm a fool. I don't want them to reject me. I don't want them to think that I'm trying to shove my religion down their throat. All of these things that our society sort of dumps on us and says those things are not okay, we can shy away. We can pull back. We cannot share the gospel. Or we can share it in part and not be willing to share the full truth of what we know to be good and true. And what's interesting is that we know it's true. We know that because we believe it, we are not foolish, and yet we worry about what other people will think. We don't want to be called a fool even though we know it's the, it's the wisest thing that's ever been mentioned. It's, it's the wisest thing that has ever been revealed to mankind, that God loved us so much that he would send Jesus to die on our behalf. So it's a struggle. And the only way that I know to overcome it is to fight those things that come up into your brain, the lie, with what is true. When we remember what the gospel is and what it can do, it will inspire us to not pull back, right? It will inspire us to not soften the message that we know we have been called to preach. What does Paul say here? He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The power, that Greek word there is dunamos, which is where we get our word dynamite. That is the kind of power that the gospel has. It has the ability to explode everything. It will blow up everything that you thought you knew to be good and true. It will utterly destroy the American dream of bigger and better and newer. That's what the unbelieving world is after, right? Money and fame and new stuff and bigger stuff and impress everybody around them. But when we have the gospel in our lives, all of those things are blown to bits. We don't, we don't worry about those things anymore. When we share the gospel with somebody, we are essentially saying everything that you know to be true and everything that you do, all of the things that you're pursuing in this life are about to get turned on their head. They're about to be destroyed. They're about to be turned over. But it's the best thing that will happen to you ever. It's the only thing that can save you. And so even though we're preaching a hard message to the world, we know it's what the world needs. We know it's what is the only way for them to be saved. And so we go with this stick of dynamite, right? And we're willing to throw it into the lives of our neighbors or our family members or our friends who are unbelievers, knowing that it's going to upend everything, but knowing that it is the best thing for them. See, salvation is not like a degree that you can add to your resume. It changes everything about your life. It upends everything. Nothing is the same. And yet, there is freedom. There is freedom to not have to worry about whether you are pleasing God or not. You just live your life. We talked about this on Thursday in our small group, and it was just wonderful. I think it was um, Tyler who said it. Like, you just, when, like when you trade in your slavery to sin, you're, you become a slave of Christ. That's what we talked about last week. But it's just you have the immense amount of freedom to just live in relationship with God. All of the other stuff that the other worldviews and the other religions are worried about, no more. You see, the people worshiping next door, 
They're worried about how many, how many people have they visited. They're worried about how many good deeds have they done this week. Is it enough? And we come together and we say, praise God that it's not anything to do with me. There's nothing that I can do for my salvation. I don't have to worry about that. I have the freedom to just love God and be in relationship with Him. I thought of this after last week. I wish I had said it then. You see, we are still a slave to Christ, but in that, we have freedom. And we are a slave. Our slavery is to the freedom in Jesus, right? Slavery in the sense, when we think about that word and we think about what it means, what it is, is that we have been bound to the freedom that we find in Christ. Jesus is the perfect taskmaster. And so we have all freedom in that slavery. So Paul tells us he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation, both to the Jew and to the Greek. Now this separation means little to us, right? This is not a world that we really live in. We don't think of people in these terms, Jews and Greeks, right? In essence, Paul says the entire world, right? The gospel is for everybody. The gospel is not just for one group of people, for one race, for one socioeconomic status, for one nation. It's for everyone. This means that we evangelize the homeless, and we also evangelize the people who live in Edgemont, right? We evangelize the doctors and the lawyers, and we evangelize the checker when we're at City Market. It doesn't have any boundaries. Everybody needs this truth, no matter who they are, no matter where they are in their life. This is the thing that will fix it. Giving money or giving food or somebody who is in need, that's not bad. But the thing that they need far more than all of that is to know who Jesus is. And the last thing Paul says here is that the just shall live by faith. It's a profound statement to make in the midst of all of this, talking about the gospel. So my question for you this morning is, do you seek to be justified in the eyes of God. Is that what you're hoping for? Are you trying to live a life of righteousness? Are you trying to live a just life? If you're holding up your own deeds and your own works before the Lord and saying, here is where my righteousness lies, you have missed the gospel completely. That is not what the gospel of God is about. That is not what the Bible is telling us. The righteousness of God is manifested in us through Christ. It's not about us. It's not about anything that we have ever done or said. It is about God. It is his righteousness that is being given to us. And we don't just have to read about the righteous God who is living in heaven and sitting on his throne. But God made it apparent. He made it evident when Jesus comes to earth that he is fully and 100% righteous in the obedience of Christ. You see, God did more than just say he is righteous. He lived it out. Through the life of Christ. He comes to earth and obeys completely. He suffered and he was tempted by everything that every single one of us has ever been tempted by. And he overcame it. To be fully righteous, we have to take on the righteousness of God. It is revealed to us from faith for faith. God gives us his righteousness when he gives us our faith. And our faith has grown stronger by that righteousness. 
So to be just in this life, to be righteous, is not to do everything perfectly. It is to live a life of faith. It is to live a life that is trusting in Christ alone. If you're here this morning, and that's not what you're doing, if you're here this morning and you're trusting in your own goodness, or you're even just saying, well, God seems to be like a really nice being, he'll probably be okay with, you know, I, I haven't done everything perfectly, but isn't he loving and isn't he gracious? He's just going to, he's going to let me in. I've done a lot of really good things and they, and they're probably, maybe they outweigh my bad. And so I'm just going to, I'm just going to hope for the best. And that's not how it works. Your righteousness is found only in Christ. If you want to live a life of righteousness, you want to be seen as just by God, hide behind Jesus, hide behind the cross, and let him stand between, right? That is why he's, he is our intercessor. Think about this, right? You stand before God the Father. He is holy, and he expects you to be perfect. And he looks at you and he says, are you perfect? What is, what is it that you have done to earn an eternity with me in heaven? And our answer is to say, your son, he gave it to me. I didn't do it. Nothing I have but the righteousness of Christ. He freely gave that to me, and I have faith in that, and I believe in that, and I trust in that alone, and that is where I find my righteousness. That is the only way that I could ever see, present myself as somebody who is just, because I am hiding behind Jesus. He is just. Please let me hide in his shadow. Look at your son. Don't look at me. And God the Father is willing. And he loves us, and he says, absolutely, I will. I look at my son, his perfect righteousness, and I, and I don't see, he doesn't see you and I anymore in all of our sinfulness. He sees Jesus. We are, our identity is completely tied up in who Jesus is. He gives it to us, and we have it. So if you're here this morning and you have your own righteousness, shed it, get rid of it, destroy it. Find your righteousness in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we have a challenging message this morning. One that the church has been asked to participate in, in their prayers of unity. Lord, that we would be in each other's lives in a meaningful and deep way. That we would love one another. That we would pray for one another. And that we would extend that love and those prayers for those in our community, in our world, in our neighborhoods, at our workplace, Lord, that we would evangelize the world that you have put in front of us. It's hard to do. It's challenging. There are days when we are ashamed because we don't want to be seen as the fool. We don't want to be seen as the Bible thumper or the, the kook, the religious person. But, Lord, we know that these things are good and we know these things are true. Help us to be bold. Give us courage to stand up for what we know is right and is true. That we can preach the gospel to those around us in its entirety. That we wouldn't leave out the parts that we think, ah, oh, that's going to offend somebody. It's all offensive. But it's true and it's good and it's the only thing that can save this world. Lord, we ask that for each one of us, Lord, there's people that we all know there's people that you have put into our lives that need to hear the truth of Jesus. Lord, give us the boldness. I pray for it this week that every single one of us would have an opportunity and have the boldness and the courage to stand up and preach the gospel. Even if it's just one time to one person. Lord, put it in front of us. 
Strengthen our faith. Give us the courage to do it. Help us to be obedient. Help us to not be ashamed. To see Paul's example and to go out into this world as a light shining on a hill. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.